Welcome to Decoding Security. Website security is something we all have to think about. We may be familiar with securing our websites, but it's also incredibly easy to overlook something simple. Today, Jessica and Michael will be going over some security 101 concepts for keeping your website secure. First, I want to catch you up on big news coming out of the financial world in regards to cybersecurity over the last couple of weeks. First, to catch up on what's going on with Equifax, their CEO, Richard Smith, has stepped down as of September 26, but that's not stopping him from going before a Senate committee to testify about how this breach occurred and what steps need to be taken to prevent such a breach in the future. In a prepared statement released on October 2nd, he said that he was ultimately responsible for what happened on his watch at the company, and he's let consumers down. That's probably not going to save him from the harsh questioning that the Senate has planned for him regarding whether or not Equifax even has the right to continue to credit report at all and what laws can be passed to prevent this kind of breach in the future, if any. Also happening in the financial world, the Deloitte accounting firm, one of the big four on Wall Street, revealed that they were the victim of a cyber attack, which may have compromised their entire internal email system, according to Brian Krebs, who's reporting that a source close to the investigation has revealed that all of their internal email systems hosted on Microsoft Azure servers were breached by an unknown assailant who may have gotten gigabytes worth of sensitive data, including IP addresses, usernames, passwords, medical records, and anything else sensitive that might have been in the form of an email attachment sent within the company. At this time, Deloitte is only reporting that approximately six of their largest blue chip customers and a few government agencies have been targeted and that their information was compromised, but they haven't yet released the full details of what occurred, except to say that the breach occurred sometime in October or November of last year. On my end, this weekend I attended CactusCon 2017, a cybersecurity conference held here in the Phoenix Valley. Attendance is growing. We had a count of just over 1,200 this year. Last year it was around 800. Some really cool stuff going on over there. Probably the coolest thing to me was their KidsCon. They had a whole separate area cordoned off where parents could bring their children in anywhere from eight-year-old and all the way up through teenagers, really getting a cool opportunity to learn about networking and the concepts of security and privacy fundamentals. It's super cool that we had that here in the Valley, and I'm excited to see next year and see how much bigger it continues to get. Some of the talks that were my personal favorites, Mary DeGrazia did a presentation on e-commerce forensics and looking into breaches in sites running e-commerce platforms like Magento, seeing some of the more um, post-mortem forensics from the position of somebody doing that incident remediation after the fact was really interesting. Another mention goes out to Average Joe, who did a talk on recycling malware. Uh, It was really interesting taking the sorts of ransomware and and malware that you can end up with on your computer and repurposing that to do different things than it was intended to. With October being National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, every week has a different theme. The first week in October's theme is Simple Steps for Internet Safety. Being that at SiteLock, we focus ourselves on web security and securing websites specifically. What better place to get started with that than by talking about basic steps to take with your website? The first step to website security basics is going to be to secure the way that users connect to your website. And you're going to do that by way of an SSL certificate. It stands for a secure socket layer, and it's going to tell browsers that they're able to connect over HTTPS or a secure HTTP protocol. What that's going to do is encrypt 
all communications to and from that server so that third-party listeners like your network administrators, people in your ISP's network, governments, they aren't going to be able to decrypt that and inspect the information going to and from that site. I guess that begs the question then, who needs an SSL? What websites need an SSL? Traditionally, we've always said that only e-commerce sites need an SSL, but the times have changed. And really, the fact of the matter is everyone needs an SSL certificate now. There's no excuse not to have one. Let's Encrypt has been out for a little while now, and it allows anybody to get a validated SSL certificate. So none of those, this certificate is not trusted warnings or anything like that without imposing that $70, $80, fee that a lot of providers are charging for signed SSL certificates. They're completely free of charge. So cost-effectiveness is no longer an excuse. Securing your website via HTTPS really goes beyond the connection protection into perception and reputation. Businesses that have an SSL certificate on their website are in higher regard than those that don't. And that's going to be even more obvious come October 24th when Chrome releases version 62 that will actually have a warning that says not secure on all form entry fields on websites that do not have SSLs. And Google for a little while now has already been implementing SEO changes. So you're going to show up higher on Google if you offer HTTPS versus people who don't. The concern, though, with Let's Encrypt is that it's a little bit different to install than a usual SSL certificate. If you're on a shared hosting platform, that provider may restrict you in terms of the amount of access you have to your server, and they might not let you install the software that you need to get Let's Encrypt up and running. That's sort of because they've got a conflict of interest there. A lot of hosting providers are trying to sell you their own SSL certificates, and they don't really have much of an incentive to remove that sort of barrier to entry for the free certificates. That's where you want to start looking into things like a self-managed server where you or an administrator are taking care of everything on the back end instead of your hosting provider. So at that point, it becomes a question of whether having more control of your server is worth sort of that uh, exchange and responsibilities. With shared hosting, your hosting provider, whoever that may be, is going to be running the show on the background, but limiting you in that sense. So if you want more control, you also take on more responsibility. And that's going to mean additionally doing your own updates. And when you're responsible for doing your own updates on a self-managed server, you're talking about all of your server-wide updates in addition to just your website application versus on a shared hosting platform where you're just talking about your website application updates, like your WordPress core or your plugins and themes. Updates are an incredibly important piece of website security. In fact, I would go so far as to say they're the most important piece of keeping a website secure. Those updates aren't released for fun. They're released to address vulnerabilities that the developers have found out about to prevent attackers or bad actors from getting into your website. And when you're moving away from a shared hosting platform onto something where there's a little bit more responsibility on your shoulders to perform these updates, it's critical that your administrator do this for you. The Equifax breach from a couple of weeks ago took place because of a lack of updates to the Apache Struts framework running on the back of those servers. Granted, we can talk about incident response and whether there were any other layers of security there, but the bottom line is they didn't do updates and it left them vulnerable. 
Right. And keep in mind, too, that these updates come after a period of time called responsible disclosure, where the updates will come prior to the developers disclosing the actual vulnerability. And the reason for that is that they want their customers or their users to be able to update their applications before they release the details of the vulnerability, because then bad actors will go in and try to reverse engineer that vulnerability and attack anybody who hasn't yet done their updates. We saw this a couple of months back in February with the WordPress 4.7 and 4.7.1 REST API vulnerabilities. These vulnerabilities allowed anybody on the internet to submit these specially crafted requests that could update and modify the content of any post on a WordPress site. We didn't see any of this until after the responsible disclosure period was up. Just for a timeline there, the vulnerability was identified and patched. The patch was released to the public and then six days later, the WordPress.org community disclosed what was going on and said, hey, this was the vulnerability that we were patching last week. Immediately after that, we saw exploits. Not just a few unpatched websites. Estimates are up to 1.5 million sites were defaced because they didn't update when they were supposed to. So updates are critical to the website security process. It's much cheaper to keep your site up to date, even if it means changing a theme or a plugin, than it is to recover your reputation or customer data that was lost because of a hack. The excuse that we hear most commonly in this industry for why I didn't update were because things could break. On the scale of maybe a huge enterprise like Equifax, sure, there needs to be some patching time, there needs to be some testing, but for your average WordPress website, that's what backups are for. You make a backup, you apply the patch, and then you make another backup. If the patch breaks something, you've got that first backup to fall back on. That backup shouldn't be used, though, as an excuse not to keep updating. Just because you have to revert to using your backup after a patch breaks something doesn't mean that you get to say, okay, I guess I'm using the old version now. It means that you have to look at the plugin or theme that caused the problem and patch or replace that prior to applying whatever core patch it was that broke the website. Definitely. It's a stopgap. It is not a long-term solution. You need to be making sure that these vulnerabilities are being patched and a broken header image is never an excuse to not do that. And you brought up backups. So I want to talk a little bit about backups. They're another key aspect of website security that is often overlooked. We recommend people use the 321 rule, which means three backups on two types of media with at least one of those backups being off-site. Keeping one of those backups or more off-site is important. I see too many people who are making these daily or weekly backups of their website, but they're just leaving them in a folder on their server called backup. They're not going anywhere with them. They're just sitting there on the web server next to everything else. And to me, that's sort of like having a spare key and just leaving it in the glove compartment of your car. So if something breaks catastrophically, if they don't have access to that server anymore, or knock on wood, if a bad actor breaks in and starts deleting things, there is no contingency there. There's no disaster recovery plan. It's really, really, really important that you've got these backups in a place where they're accessible no matter what happens and that you're testing them. Testing them is a super important aspect that even people who may maintain multiple backups overlook. Just like in elementary school, we had to do fire drills every quarter to remember how to get out of the building in the event of an emergency. You should be doing disaster recovery drills. Basically, what that means is make sure that your backups exist, they're not corrupted, and have your restore policy in place. It's really not as hard as it sounds. And the saying goes, if you don't test your backups, then you don't have backups. When I spoke about having something stored off-site, having something on your server is fine for things like 
on-the-go backups. Like, I'm installing an update, and I want to be able to revert right away if it catches on fire. Totally fine. But your disaster recovery backups, those need to be somewhere accessible. Have one on a hard drive locally. Have one stored with a cloud provider that you trust, or at the other office if you've got multiple, or really anywhere that there is some redundancy at play. There needs to be multiple copies of this, because if you lose access to one, and that's your only one, then you're up a creek. Even using a thumb drive or burning something to a CD would be fine in terms of having at least one emergency copy of your website. That being said, do you have any last tips that we can send our listeners off into National Cybersecurity Awareness Month with? There's a billion things that we could be talking about, but on the subject of the basics, I want to talk a little bit about passwords. With all of the password theory out there and guidelines and protocols that people are doing, it's really hard to do anything more than just the tip of the iceberg on the subject. But my number one recommendation is going to be to use a password manager. Now, sure, it's a little bit easier said than done to hunt down all the places you've created accounts and change them to randomized passwords and store them in a vault, but it's really, really worth it in the long run. We see attackers using a technique called credential stuffing, where they've got a database of passwords that they breach from, say, the Yahoo attack, and they're going to just take these usernames and passwords and try to stuff them wherever they'll go. So if you use the same email and password for Yahoo that you do on Facebook, then they're going to be able to get into your Facebook. If you use the same password for your bank, they're going to be able to get into your bank. So keeping all of these different credentials segregated and stored somewhere safe, that is your biggest friend in the case that that happens. Having unique passwords across every account is a big deal. But more than that, having these incomprehensible passwords that you can't remember is a big deal as well. One of the adages that you hear about password security is the most secure password that you can have is the one that you don't know. I can say quite reliably that other than the password that I use to unlock my password vault, I don't know any of my passwords. I maybe go a little bit excessive with it. They're all 48 characters long with about 160 bits of entropy because I'm like that. But just having something that somebody isn't going to guess is going to go miles. Thank you, Jessica and Michael. Hopefully some of our listeners got some good tips today or at least a good refresher on some knowledge they already had. And speaking of our listeners, we'd like to thank you for checking out our podcast and be sure to catch our next podcast on October 17th where we will be discussing the Internet of Things. Decoding Security is hosted by Jessica Ortega and Michael Veenstra and produced by Topher Tebow for Sitelog. The music, Upbeat Forever by Kevin McLeod of Incomputech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License. <laughs>